My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Mormon Church in 50 Objects podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects. Today we're on episode 23, and it's a bit heavy, so buckle up. Let's set the stage for the show really quickly. In the last episode, we discussed how the Mormon Church tripped up in Kirtland as leadership crumpled around Joseph Smith. Kirtland, the capital of the Mormon Church at the time, had rejected the Mormons and driven them out under the threat of lawsuits and persecutions. Whereas the Mormons were driven out of independence by angry mobs, The people in Kirtland were disenfranchised Mormons, and like I said, many of them former church leaders. In this episode, we'll be sitting deep in the year 1838. Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, Brigham Young, and the rank-and-file members abandoned Kirtland and relocated to Missouri to join the Mormons in Caldwell County. There were still missionaries all over the United States and in Europe, and total church membership was just under 20,000 people, a staggering number of converts in just under eight years, and taking all things to this point into consideration. So, context. What was going on in America at this time? In March of 1837, Martin Van Buren would take the oath of office as President of the United States. President Van Buren doesn't know it yet, but Joseph Smith will shortly be calling upon him in person to discuss the treatment of the Mormons in Missouri. Across the ocean, Great Britain also had a change in leadership. On June 20th, Queen Victoria would be crowned at the tender age of 18. The story of her life has been the subject of countless movies and TV shows, many of which my wife has forced me to watch. Back in the States on January 27, 1838, a young man would give his first public speech in Springfield, Illinois. The speech was well received, and the political career of Abraham Lincoln would begin to pick up steam. Now, just a few months after that speech on May 10th, A future actor was born in Maryland. The actor would struggle to make himself known, but his name would forever be remembered when John Wilkes Booth would shoot and kill Abraham Lincoln. And finally, on July 4th, 1838, Iowa would become an official U.S. territory. It feels weird to say that the Mormon Church has been around longer than the state of Iowa, but here we are. Now, as Iowa had been declared a territory, a borderline would need to be settled between Iowa and northern Missouri. The Missouri surveyor drawing the line did a very sloppy job and ended up claiming more land up into Iowa than was agreed upon. So later that year, Missouri would send tax collectors into the Iowa border settlements to collect state taxes from Missouri. The Iowa locals would have none of it and chase them off under the threat of death. When later in 1838, some Missouri men would stray into territory claimed by Iowa to cut down some honeybee trees, Iowa militias would begin to form. Not to be outdone, the governor of Missouri would form up his entire state militia and send them to the border for drilling in a show of power. Now level heads would prevail and no battle would ensue, but the near skirmish would come to be known as the Honey War for the stolen honey trees. The Missouri governor, Lilburn Boggs, had a very quick trigger finger at organizing that state militia. Where did he get that experience? Missouri would cut their teeth on the Mormons. Now, just a state over was a man named David Patton. David Patton was living in eastern Michigan with his wife, Phoebe Ann Babcock, and life was tough. None of their children would make it to adulthood, 
and although David was a professed Methodist, he was often heard to comment that there was no true religion on earth. Then in 1830, he heard rumor while in town about the Book of Mormon. David said that he felt greatly agitated in mind and desired to see it. That summer, he got a hold of the book. He read the entire Book of Mormon and the testimony of the three witnesses. David felt moved, but wasn't keen to joining himself with the Mormons. So imagine his surprise when two years later, David learned that his brother had been baptized as a Mormon. This seemed to flip a switch with David Patton, who saddled up his horse and rode over 300 miles into Indiana to visit his brother and learn about the Mormon church. On June 15, 1832, David Patton was baptized a Mormon by his brother. Now over the next two years, his zeal for Mormonism became famous within the church. David would go on to serve 12 different missions for the church. He was famous for baptizing hundreds of people during each mission, setting up branches across the eastern United States, and encouraging those members to unite themselves with Joseph Smith and the church leadership. David Patton would become an apostle, and if Mormons out there have read the book Miracle of Forgiveness by Spencer W. Kimball, you'll recognize David's name. He'd written a letter to Abraham Smoot, and Spencer W. Kimball included it in the book. In the letter, David Patton said he was riding on his horse in Tennessee when a large hairy man approached him on foot. According to the letter, Patton claimed the man introduced himself as Cain from the Old Testament, wandering the earth as punishment for killing Abel. That story has withstood the Mormon folklore test of time. But my favorite story about him goes that when he was teaching as a missionary in Avon, New York, during a church meeting, he was constantly interrupted by a heckler. David Patton told him to be quiet or he would put him out, to which the heckler responded, you can't do it. And according to the story, Patton answered, in the name of the Lord, I will. And he picked up the man with both hands, took him to the back door, and threw him onto a wood pile. This story became a popular tale for early members of the church. But more than anything, the story speaks to David Patton's independent spirit. Mormons across the states probably weren't surprised when on October 24, 1838, word came to the Mormons in far west Missouri that three brothers had been captured and held by the Missouri militia. Of course, David Patton would volunteer to lead a collection of armed Mormons to save the men. The Mormons quickly discovered the militia and a battle ensued. The militia were better soldiers, and when shots rang out at a place called Crooked River, it quickly became apparent to David Patton that the militia was in a superior position and would eventually win this gunfight. With shouts of God and liberty, David Patton stood up in the midst of all those rifle blasts and shouting upon the Mormons rallied them to charge the Missouri militia's lines. The militia, seeing the Mormons coming down upon them, lost their nerve, broke ranks, and ran for it. The three hostage Mormon men were recovered, but lost in the jubilation of the victory was David Patton. David took a musket ball to the stomach and would die a slow and agonizing death. Now, what were the reactions between the Mormons and Governor Boggs and his Missouri militia? The Mormons would quickly gather around Patton before he died. His last words to his wife were, Whatever you do, oh, do not deny the faith. After which he addressed the others collected around him with, quote, I feel that I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown which the Lord will give me. End quote. Now, what was the reaction of Governor Boggs? Today's object is Missouri Executive Order 44. So, what is Missouri Executive Order 44? In the 1830s, due to such strong state rights, state governors had a lot more power than they do today. The governor at the time in 1838 was a man named Lilburn Boggs. 
You'll remember him from episode 14, where we discussed Jackson County's secret constitution. He was no friend of the Mormons, and played a behind-the-scenes role in their expulsion from independence. After the Battle of Crooked River, reports from the fighting arrived at his office. Governor Boggs had been following this Mormon crisis for some time, though to this point not really doing much to settle it. One member of the Missouri militia had been killed during the skirmish. Three Mormons had died. But that wasn't the story Boggs was fed. Boggs was told that the Mormons had wiped out the entire militia. So Boggs, fearing the Mormons, were far too violent. Yes, that's almost comical to say out loud after what the Mormons have been through in Missouri. Boggs called up the entire state militia and issued Executive Order 44. The order called the entire state militia to arms with the command to put down the Mormon rebellion. The order itself is about three paragraphs long, but can be summed up in these lines, quote, The Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state. This was an extermination order against the Mormons. Now, how did Executive Order 44 come about? So, we mentioned last episode how Joseph Smith and the Kirtland leadership and rank-and-file members were leaving Kirtland, Ohio. They were headed for Caldwell County, Missouri. The headquarters of the church was now going to be far west, which was the capital of Caldwell County. But with so many Mormons arriving, many noticed that there were better lands in Davies County and DeWitt County. At the time, in the United States, there was a program in place called preemption. How it worked was you would settle on ground, develop and make improvements on that land, and when the land came up for sale, you got first option to buy it at a low rate. This helped America develop all these territories and provide a means whereby common working folks got to get a hold of land and make a living. Mormon leaders would help newly arriving Mormons to take advantage of preemption, this program, to acquire land all over Caldwell County and Davies County. This program was used to buy huge swaths of land known today to the Mormon church as Adam on Diamond. Now, during this short period of time, a number of things pop up that cause a major conflict with the Missouri natives. So, first off, the Mormons were arriving in Missouri daily in the tens and hundreds. Like I said, they were settling in Davies and DeWitt County outside of Caldwell County, and this angered the locals of Missouri, who said that the Mormons had agreed to stay in Caldwell County. The Mormons understood the agreement to be that Caldwell County was dedicated to them, but that they couldn't go into claim independence counties, but that they were free men to live where they pleased outside of that. Secondly, the Missourians noticed that Joseph Smith, Hiram Smith, Orson Hyde, and the likes had settled into Missouri now too. So now the Mormon church leadership was in Missouri. It didn't help that when they arrived, they took the leadership reins from W.W. Phelps and Oliver Cowdery's brothers-in-law, David and John Whitmer. This left a bit of a bad taste in the mouth of those church leaders as they didn't agree with Joseph's economic policies. They disagreed with the Kirtland Safety Society, and they didn't want to live in a Zion-type community. Whereas Joseph Smith was building up the church with an Old Testament flair where they were like the children of Israel with God and a prophet at their head, Oliver, W.W. Phelps, and the Whitmers seemed to feel that they were building was more resembling New Testament Christians with no overarching leadership. Oliver Cowdery, W.W. Phelps, John and David Whitmer, and Hiram Page would all be excommunicated from the church over these disagreements. So now it gets really complicated. These excommunicated leaders had purchased land and they didn't want to leave it. They wanted to stay on their land, but Joseph Smith and the leadership countered that most of the land was bought with church funds. 
At one point, the excommunicated Mormons started making such a fuss to the locals of Missouri that Orson Hyde and a group of Mormon militia men called the Danites told the excommunicated Mormons that they were a salt that had lost its flavor and was good for nothing more than to be trampled underfoot. They then demanded the excommunicated leaders immediately leave the Caldwell County. Well, this really set off some red flags to the locals of Missouri. What was going on with Joseph Smith and the Mormons to be sending off leadership and supposedly stealing their lands? Now, the last thing to happen here took place on August 6, 1838. It was election day in Davies County, and the locals were worried about who the Mormons were going to vote for. The local favorite in the election was William Penniston. However, William was certainly not going to get the Mormons' vote, as he had publicly declared the Mormons horse thieves and robbers. He then warned the locals about the dangers of allowing the Mormons to vote in blocks. So, on election day, about 200 non-Mormons gathered to stop any Mormons from voting. When about 30 Mormons showed up to vote, a fairly large brawl broke out. Now, if you've ever played church basketball in a Mormon meeting house, you won't be surprised to hear that the Mormons won the fight. As both sides went to collect guns, cooler heads prevailed and the crowds dispersed. So all of these things began to mix together and got the Mormons again in hot water with the people of Missouri. Immediately in the upcoming months, mobs will begin showing up at Mormon homes in DeWitt County and threatening violence if the Mormons wouldn't leave. The Mormons refused, claiming they were free Americans and can settle wherever they pleased. Now on September 20th of 1838, a Missouri mob would surround a Mormon settlement in DeWitt County and demand that all the Mormons leave. The Mormons immediately appealed for help from Governor Boggs and threatened to fight back if attacked. After being encircled and starved for almost a month, they received a response from Governor Boggs in October. His response? That the quarrel was between the Mormons and the mob and they should fight it out. Two days later, outgunned, the DeWitt Mormons broke. They gave up their lands and headed for Caldwell County. That night during the trek to Caldwell County, two women died, one of exposure and one in childbirth. So at this point, the Mormons just felt up against it. They'd been driven out of a number of Missouri settlements and Governor Boggs wasn't getting involved. So the Mormons decided to collect their arms, enter Davies County, and go after the men that were behind all of this. So maybe 200 plus Mormons went through Davies County. They drove out the men. They burned down some of the homes. This was to be a message that they wanted to be left alone, and the Mormons hoped that this would settle the issue. Now, we finally arrived at the Battle of Crooked River, which we referenced at the beginning of the show. The Missouri militias immediately hit back. They came into Caldwell County, burned down some Mormon homes, and took some of the Mormon men hostage. The Caldwell County judge called up the Caldwell County militia, who were all Mormons, and they were organized behind David Patton with the order to find and recover the captured Mormon men. So they met on the border of Clay and Caldwell County in the middle of the night. The Mormon militia was being led by a non-Mormon youth who knew where the Missouri militia had made camp. When the Mormons approached in the middle of the night and asked to speak, the militia immediately opened fire, hitting the non-Mormon youth and killing him. The battle lasted less than an hour, and as I stated before, the Mormons came out on top. So with all of that as context, Governor Boggs then organized the entire state militia and issued the Mormon extermination order. So that's how the order came about. Now, how was it carried out? Within weeks, over 2,000 Missouri military men answered the call and were on the border of Caldwell County. They chose a small settlement just outside far west Missouri to enter the county. The settlement was named Hans Mill. It was named after a man named Jacob Hahn. We mentioned this in episode 19. 
Hans Mill was a small settlement with about 20 to 30 Mormon families living together. This land had been acquired and developed by preeminence program. This land was going to be coming up for sale shortly. And although Joseph Smith had advised these small border settlements to leave, they ignored his request and wanted to defend their land. So on October 30th, 240 militiamen approached the settlement. As the women and children fled into the woods, the men organized inside the blacksmith's shop and prepared to fight if necessary. David Evans, one of the settlement leaders, swung his hat and cried for peace. The sound of a hundred rifles answered him. Most of them aimed at the blacksmith's shop. The militia shot mercilessly at everyone in sight, including women, elderly men, and children. According to the journal entry of Amanda Smith, she seized her two little girls and ran with a friend across the mill pond on a walkway. Amanda recalled, Yet though we were women with tender children and flight for our lives, the militia poured volley after volley to kill us. The Mormon men were ill-prepared to defend themselves in a poorly fortified blacksmith's shop, and the militia was upon them immediately firing through the open slats and cutting down the Mormons. The militia entered the shop and finished off most of the men with knives, including a 10-year-old Mormon boy. The killer was recorded to say, Nits will make lice, and if he lived, he would have become a Mormon. All told, 17 men were left dead, with 30 wounded, including Jacob Hahn, who would recover later. The militia then marched on far west and surrounded it. At that point, outnumbered nearly five to one, the Mormon leadership sued for peace. They were told that if Joseph Smith and the leaders would surrender and stand trial, the fighting would cease. The Mormon leadership agreed. Joseph Smith and others were immediately arrested. Now, one interesting note here is that after Joseph Smith and the leaders were captured, that night General Lucas of the Missouri militia said that the Mormon leaders were sentenced to be executed the next morning on the public square in Far West. However, when General Alexander Donovan received the order from General Lucas, he was indignant at the brutality of the injustice of the affair and replied, It is cold-blooded murder. I will not obey your order. My brigade will march for liberty tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. And if you execute these men, I will hold you responsible before an earthly tribunal, so help me God. Donovan probably saved Joseph Smith and the leadership. Lucas lost his nerve and let them take Joseph Smith and the leaders to liberty to stand trial. Now, as Far West had surrendered, the remaining Mormons were commanded to lay down their arms. On the morning of November 1st, the Missouri militia entered the city. While searching for arms, they vandalized the town, plundered valuable possessions, raped some of the women, and forced the leading elders at Bayonet Point to sign promises to pay the expenses of the militia. General John B. Clark, the governor's designated commanding officer for the Mormon War, arrived and he ordered everyone to stay in the city. The starving Mormons were forced to live on parched corn. On November 6th, he addressed the suffering Mormons and indicated that he would not force them out of the state in the depths of winter. He said, For this, lenity, you are indebted to my clemency. I do not say that you shall go now, but you must not think of staying here another season or of putting in crops. As for your leaders, do not think, do not imagine for a moment, do not let it into your mind that they will be delivered or that you will see their faces again, for their fate is fixed, their die is cast, and their doom is sealed. Now, where can you see Missouri Executive Order 44? The actual order has been lost to time, but you can see copies of the verbiage online. Just Google it. Now, what happened to Missouri Executive Order 44? In 1976, U.S. Senator Christopher Bond of Missouri rescinded the 1838 extermination order, authorizing the expulsion of Mormons from the state of Missouri. 
Regarding this action, Senator Bond went on to say, quote, The treatment of the Mormon people in Missouri in the 1830s was beyond barbaric. Women were raped and tortured. Men were killed by mobs or driven out of the state. Their property was stolen. The lucky ones were those who were left alive with nothing and were forced to make their way into a more hospitable state. End quote. I'm sure the Mormons were grateful to Senator Bond for rescinding the extermination order, even if it was 138 years after it was issued. Well, we can't leave on such a negative note. Let's quickly touch on what happened to the excommunicated Mormon leaders from Missouri. First off, Oliver Cowdery. Oliver would be rebaptized in 1848 by Orson Hyde after petitioning Brigham Young for readmittance. Brigham would even task Oliver to be part of the group traveling to Washington, D.C. to petition the government for statehood for Deseret, or Utah as it's now called. He would defend his story of the miracle of the translation of the Book of Mormon to his dying day. Now, David Whitmer, he wouldn't ever rejoin the church, but he did request that his testimony of the Book of Mormon be placed on his tombstone. Lastly, W.W. Phelps, who, if you recall, assisted with the creation of Emma Smith's hymn book, was also rebaptized into the church. After the Missouri Mormon War ended and the Mormons were resettled in Nauvoo, W.W. Phelps wrote a letter to Joseph Smith humbly begging his forgiveness. Joseph replied with this quip, Come on, dear brother, since the war is past, for friends at first are friends again at last. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this long episode of History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects, Missouri Executive Order 44. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at joehomc, historyofmormonchurch at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for listening. <music>